If you would turn in your Bibles to the 92nd Psalm, uh, that's our scripture passage today, as it was last Sunday. Uh, 15 verses, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15 primarily this morning, but let's read the entire psalm. Psalm 92, and I'm reading from the English Standard Translation. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Father, it's only by the gracious working of your Holy Spirit that we can truly comprehend your word. We know that the scriptures breathed out by you can only be understood truly by the working of your spirit, enabling us as those who have been regenerated by that spirit, to have our minds transformed by your word. We know, too, that we as human beings, redeemed human beings, do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Father, so it was written in the law of Moses, so it was repeated by Jesus, even in his great trial and temptation before the devil. And so we, too, come uh, asking for your Holy Spirit uh, to take your word and to feed us, feed us with what we need uh, to grow in likeness to Jesus Christ, uh, to understand uh, our purpose in this world, and above all, to be increasingly fit uh, to lift up the name of Jesus with a life that is made holy by the work of Christ made holy by your grace and mercy toward us, that we would be in this world, during this generation, even the salt and the light that you have called us as Christians to be. We ask for this, that week by week, even day by day, we would be transformed by your word so that we can fulfill your purposes in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Uh, 
I, I want to begin this morning, because we're on a note of Thanksgiving, to tell you a story, uh, a story that, that, I, that I doubt whether it's actually true. But, uh, you know, pastors will often get things sent to them, uh, little funny stories and so forth, supposedly to uh, make your sermons more user-friendly. I don't really care to make my sermons user-friendly, but I always think about this particular little story whenever I think about the subject of Thanksgiving. So here it is. There was a Christian family at one point, and they were having a big Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, they had all of their family there, all of their relatives. And they had a number of children. And the last of their kit and caboodle happened to be a little girl who they had intentionally or unintentionally spoiled rotten, so to speak. You know how that can be if you've got five, six kids. The caboose comes along and you just dote on her and everything she does is funny and so forth. Well, she was really quite spoiled about five years of age and at this particular on this particular day at this particular thanksgiving meal she was making a a true pill of herself in such a way that finally the dad warned her that if you don't behave as mommy and the rest of us are putting together this thanksgiving meal if you don't behave you will not be allowed to sit at the table with us we we will feed you elsewhere well, uh, she took that as a challenge, you know, really, really, mom and dad. So it came to the fact that she continued to misbehave. And so the dinner comes and the dad sets up a card table and places away from everybody else. He sets the table. He sets the food down in front of her and he says, OK, you pray that this is where you're going to eat. And she could see everybody at the other table. So she bows her head and prays this way. Thank you, Father, that you have prepared a banquet before me in the presence of my enemies. <laughs> now, the reason why I think that story uh, is apropos to what we're looking at today is, is primarily because uh, the one who has written Psalm 92 and the one who has written so many psalms went through a life, as we'll mention later, that was a challenging, challenging life. And you know Psalm 23. You know that great line in Psalm 23, that, you know, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And 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 that truth, that fact, is, is part of the reason why in the life of David we find a tremendous spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude, that again and again and again David would look Look to God with that spirit of thanksgiving, no matter what his circumstances were. That's what I want us to think about. I, I want us to think about how the life that we live is, is a life of, of being called to give God thanks and gratitude for all that he's done for us. So I want to point out a, a couple of things here right from the beginning. Psalm 118 and Psalm 136. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Their very first lines in both of these psalms begin exactly the same way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So that entire psalm is a song of thanksgiving in which the psalm writer, likely David, begins with personal redemption 
And then he moves on to the redemption of God's people. And even within Psalm 118, there's this, there's wonderful messianic reference in verse 22 to 24 that goes this way. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving, but it focuses upon the theme of giving God thanks, being grateful to God because of his redemption. What makes us glad and what makes us grateful is the work that God has done in giving us his cornerstone that everyone else has rejected, giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you go on to Psalm 136. As I said, it begins exactly the same way. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But it actually keeps on repeating that refrain all the way through this long psalm. His steadfast love endures forever. It also then is a psalm of redemption, thanksgiving for God's redemptive work, because the rest of the psalm is taken up with reciting the history of Israel, the great exodus where God redeems his covenant people. Now, the connection then to Psalm 92. Uh, All three of these psalms are psalms of thanksgiving. All three of them speak of God's steadfast love. They declare how God's steadfast love is revealed to God's people in terms of salvation, in terms of redemption. And their shared theme is that of worshipful thanks to God for who God is as the Redeemer and for what God has done to save his people. Or to put this in other words, it's the worshipful thanks to God for who God is as the Savior of his people and for what God has done as the Savior of his people. That's that's the central theme of what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. So we come back to Psalm 92. That's the main thing we see in this psalm, that to live as those God has designed to worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth, we we must live as thankful people. We, We must be giving God worshipful thanks for who he is, and for what has, for all that he has done. And of course, all of that is centered in the person and work of Christ. Now, last Sunday we began by saying that this psalm has uh, four parts to it. We looked at the first two. That is to say, we looked at verses one through four, where we saw that David is teaching us to be thankful uh, for God's character and God's work, that our, that our thanksgiving flows out of us because of the works of God that have made us glad and the works of God that move us to sing for joy with a thankful heart. Then we went on to look at verses 5 through 9, where David was teaching us that we are to be thankful for God's mercy and God's justice. And here I invited us to spend a kind of extended amount of time thinking about the destiny of those who are ultimately visited by the justice of God, how verse 7 speaks of their doom and their destruction eternally. And and the point I was seeking to make was this. Our gratitude for our salvation becomes deeper when we are more deeply impressed 
with the terrible nature of the hell that we are saved from. And, and I didn't speak about fire and brimstone, uh, but I, but I pointed us to the idea in the New Testament of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and how that weeping and gnashing of teeth is an expression of, of the terrible pressures and weight of guilt, guilt for our sin. That, that that's what each human being will have to bear for all eternity without ever any hope of that burden being lifted, without ever any hope of that despair and painfulness ever being taken away. That at least we have to recognize that the painfulness of hell is going to be the, the unbearable guilt of that sin that people have committed against God. And the opposite side of that is how we are to be so grateful to God for saving us because God has spared us that torment, that despair, that utter hopelessness because of the work of Christ. And that we really have nothing as valuable as God's true forgiveness, God putting away our guilt, uh, God doing all of that truly through the sacrifice of his son who paid our debt. Nothing should ever make us more glad, more joyful than the work of God for us in Christ, whereby God has declared us forgiven and declared us righteous in his sight. That's the supreme reason for us being thankful before God. Now, this morning, we, we finish the rest of David's psalm uh, by looking at two further but associated reasons for our thankfulness. Verses 10 and 11 speak to being thankful because of God's very personal dealings with us. And then verses 12 through 15, being thankful for God's grand purposes for us as those who are redeemed. But before we get to Psalm 92, I just want to show you how prominent and strong the theme of thanksgiving is in the New Testament. How the Apostle Paul associates all of prayer with thanksgiving. So think about Ephesians 5, uh, verses 18 through 20, where Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then consider the parallel in the book of Colossians, which we've actually used these passages in our worship service already, where Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then on into chapter 4, where Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Then you might think about the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, where Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then one of the best promises of prayer that we find in Philippians chapter 4, uh, really verses 5 through through 7, but I'm reading just verse 6, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul's teaching us, it's God's will for us in Christ Jesus that we should be thankful people in all circumstances with reference to everything because we are united to Christ. We should be constantly thankful because God has redeemed us in his son. Now, David's psalm here points us in the same direction. So looking at verses 10 and 11, which point to being thankful for God's personal dealings with us. And we see it in terms of David's life. So here's what David writes, verse 10 and 11. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies and my ears have heard the doom of all my evil assailants. Now, when you think about the context of David as the king, nothing better could happen to David than what he describes here in these two verses. And he uses the common metaphors of, of um, the horn and the oil. You see, to have your horn exalted was symbolic of having one's strength increased, and to have it strengthened like that of a wild ox was really to say you've been strengthened to the max it's it's just an ultimate kind of expression but then to have to be anointed with fresh oil was to describe great blessing and great honor so david is testifying to what god had done for him david gives god the credit and the glory for all of the strength and all of the honor that happened with respect to his reign and then verse 11 David also includes then the downfall of his enemies and all of his evil assailants, which granted to David as king the security and the peace that he wanted, not just for himself, but for all of his people. So David is thankful because God has acted on his behalf, dealt with him in a very, very personal way. Now, given how many enemies David faced from outside of the nation, given how many insurrections David had to face from inside the nation, even from within his own sons seeking his throne. It's so appropriate that when David would praise God with a thankful heart, when David would be glad in the works of God, it was because David could see that God's dealings with him were personal, very personal. God rescued David from all of his foes. Now, sometimes, quite honestly, we as Christians don't realize that David led an extraordinarily difficult life. We, we, we think of the honor and glory of, of, of David as the one who slew Goliath, the one who became king over all of Israel. But I want you to recognize this. There is no question, uh, first of all, that, that, that one year of David's great sin, 
the year of his adultery, the year of his murder, that one year, that irrevocably, noticeably tarnishes his character in a life. But think about the entire span of his 70 years, how he faced an almost unbroken existence of danger and opposition all around him. And again and again, we read in the Psalms that David put all of his hope with praise and thanksgiving in God. And, and because of the innumerable times that God rescued his life from death. You see, the reason why David was a man after God's own heart was because David lived in such gratitude to God for all that God had done for him. And that's why, as, as Psalm 92 opens up, each morning David would declare God's steadfast love. And each night, uh, David would declare God's faithfulness. Uh, every day, David was made glad by the works of God's hands. It was God's works that put the song of joy in David's heart. And that's why the great Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, in his teachings on prayer, recommends to us that each day, we ought to be thanking God for God's personal dealings with us. And he writes this way, paraphrasing what he's written for the sake of our understanding the point here. He, he writes that we should humbly thank God for all of the mercies of the past night as we wake up in the morning that we have, for instance, laid down and slept and we have waked again because it's God who has sustained us. He, he says that we ought to be thankful that during the night no evil has come near to our homes. Uh, we ought to be thankful that we have been brought again into the safety uh, of the light and comforts of a new day. Uh, he says we ought to be thankful that because of God's mercies, we are not consumed that every day God's compassions fail not. They are, in fact, new every morning because great is God's faithfulness. He says we ought to be thankful that, that when we have slept and are rested and we are restored, that, that we ought to recognize that there are many, many people whose nighttime was full of anxiety and distress. And that they begin the new day in, in that state of mind. Uh, that we should be thankful when we have safe and quiet homes that we recognize that there are so many who are homeless and forced to wander about and lie exposed. So he's saying that each day we ought to be thankful and to recognize God's personal goodnesses to us that we have been saved by Christ. Uh, even while we need to acknowledge with the deepest gratitude how unworthy we are of the least of God's mercies which he has shown to us. And all of this, Matthew Henry is saying, is this. We need to know and understand that a thankful heart God will make glad and a thankful heart God will will fill with songs of joy. In essence, telling us 
that the, the, the measure of our understanding of, of any kind of earthly happiness in the Christian life is going to be intimately connected with how much we recognize all the things that God has done for us because of the work of Christ. All of the daily goodnesses and works and blessings on our behalf. All the reasons that we have for saying, Lord, we thank you for your kindnesses and goodness to us. You've done all of this because of the work of your son. Thankfulness. Because God has made us glad by his works on our behalf. And then we come down to the, the last part of this psalm, verses 12 through 15. Here David speaks to how we should be thankful for God's grand, great and grand purpose for us who are redeemed. So listen to verses 12 through 15 again, where David writes, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, I want us to note that one of the, the key words here is this word flourishing. Remember, it occurs earlier in the psalm when it talks about how the evil for a season flourish in this world. Now we're talking about the true kind of flourishing, the kind of flourishing that comes in connection to God's work for us in redemption in Christ. And what David does here is he uses the language of plant life to paint a word picture of God's grand design and purpose with respect to those who are redeemed. And first he speaks about the palm tree. Now, the palm tree here was was so significant in the Middle East because we're speaking about date palms, uh, you know, not our Bakersfield palm trees that never bear any fruit. He's speaking about date palms. Uh, he's speaking of bearing fruit, uh, so significant in the Middle East. But then he goes on to speak about the cedar of Lebanon, which is even a greater comparison to go from the date palm to the cedar of Lebanon, because the, the cedars of Lebanon had great size. They had longevity of life. They were the most excellent source of timber in the ancient world. They, they had the highest quality, even in terms of, of their scent. Uh, they had a resistance to rot and insects unparalleled by other wood, which also made them the most excellent wood for shipbuilding because cedar wood was able to resist the effects of salt water better than most other types of wood. All of that to, to describe the flourishing of God's people, that God's design for those he redeems is that they would be like this, that they would truly flourish with a life that is truly good in the sight of God. But then we also notice that flourishing is connected to a particular place, the place where they are planted. That is to say, they will be like this because of God's house. Verse 13, they are planted 
in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So God plants his people in his house. The place they flourish is his courts. Which is to say that the very place where God's people are truly going to be everything that God purposes for them to be, everything that they were designed to be, and every way in which they're going to grow spiritually, increasingly into what God purposes for them, is in the presence of God, in the house of God. In other words, they're planted where they can dwell, where God dwells. Now, to appreciate David's thought, we need to look further at this idea of the house of God, the place where God dwells. Now, in the Old Testament, it was first the tabernacle and then the temple that was revealed to be God's house with God's people here on earth. We see this uh, spoken of in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 3, in verses 5 and 6, we read, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And, and then the book of Hebrews goes on to say that uh, that God's house here on earth is actually just a, a copy of God's house in heaven. So in chapter 8 of Hebrews and verse 4 and 5, uh, we, we, we read about the tabernacle that was constructed by Moses according to God's design and how, quote, the priests who offer gifts according to law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain meaning Mount Sinai. So on this mountain, Moses is shown the pattern of the heavenly house, a pattern of the earthly tabernacle, but it was made as a copy of God's house in heaven, but it wasn't to be an exact copy. In fact, rather, the writer tells us that the earthly copies of the heavenly things were actually presented in types and shadows instead of the true form of these realities, Hebrews 10, verse 1. But there's a point to what David is saying here. When David speaks about the redeemed, when he speaks about the righteous, when he speaks about them being planted in the house of God, he's speaking of this greatest of all redemptive themes, that God and the people of God are purposed and designed to dwell together. God makes his dwelling with his people, but likewise, he purposes them to dwell with him. Now, I want to come back to the New Testament, and I want to connect this with what Jesus says about the dwelling and the house of God. I would suppose that you're familiar with what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Uh, as you know, uh, those several chapters there uh, were what Jesus spoke and taught the night before he was crucified. So these are among the very last and most significant words of Christ. But chapter uh, 14 begins this way in the first three verses. Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
in my father's house are many rooms, which is also translated dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus is giving his disciples this great promise that has a double kind of reference. When they die this earthly death, Jesus himself is going to come to them uh, to take them to heaven, to that room and place that he has prepared for them. Christ himself says that he does this service. All those that Christ died to save, he himself comes at death to take them to their heavenly home to be with him. But likewise, at the second coming, Jesus comes for all those who are still living to gather them together to live with him forever. But there's more because Jesus goes on in chapter 14 to speak of this life in verse 18. He says, in the context of going away, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then in verse 23, he says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, what Jesus is teaching is that here on earth, those redeemed by Christ will have the Father and the Son coming to them, making the, the Father and the Son making their home with him, living in them. In other words, Jesus is teaching that as he inaugurated the new covenant, it is now revealed that the people of God are the house of God. The people of God are God's earthly dwelling place. And so the writer of Hebrews said in, in chapter 3, verse 6, and we are God's house. Now that's echoed by what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, where he writes, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among you and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, this is perhaps one of the deepest truths that the Bible presents with respect to our salvation. That God seeks us in order that we might live in his presence and for his presence to abide and live in us. That this is the ultimate theme, the ultimate goal of both creation and redemption. That God's redeemed people would dwell with God and he would dwell with them. And that's really God's great and grand purpose, both in this life and a life to come. The believer's purpose is so incredibly God-centered, to live with God and to have the eternal God living in us so that we would worship him in spirit and in truth. And then David illustrates this in verse 15, where he says that we who are the redeemed, 
are those who will declare the goodness and the greatness of God, that God is righteous, and that he is our rock. And so we really finish where we began. Uh, God prepares for us a table in the presence of all of our enemies in this life for which we are so deeply thankful for all that God has done. Because when God saved us, it was for this greatest of all purposes that we would live with him and he with us, that we would worship him. And it's that which causes us to have the greatest sense of thanksgiving that we have no higher motivation than gratitude, constant gratitude for the grace of God that has given us the Lord Jesus Christ and with Jesus everlasting life. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, uh, the great things that should be said of the church of the living God in this generation as we would seek to be salt and light is that they are grateful and thankful people for what God has done for us in his son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. We would ask, Lord God, that our character would be formed by gratitude, that your salvation would work within our hearts a deep deep sense of an indebtedness to you that actually brings us great joy because our debt to you is a debt that we can never pay. Uh, Our debt to you is a debt that you have paid through the person of your son. The debt of sin wiped out by the righteousness of Christ. And so now we have nothing but gratitude for all the grace that you've shown to us. And we would pray that thankful hearts would give us glad hearts, no matter what we experience, no matter what the challenges of life might be. We pray that in all circumstances, because of the greatness of what you have done for us in Christ, we could nevertheless be thankful and have reasons every day to testify to your steadfast love in the morning and to your faithfulness by night. This we would pray through Jesus. Amen.